Welcome, everybody. This is Paul with Discovery Podcast. Tonight, we're going to have uh, Jeff uh, doing the presentation, and he's going to talk about complex trauma and the coping mechanisms. Go ahead, Jeff. Take the mic. Thanks, Paul. So a few weeks ago, we went over uh, a lot of the coping mechanisms that can come out um, of people who have undergone or lived in environments that caused complex trauma. Today, we're going to pick a few of those coping mechanisms and go a little bit more in depth into them. So first, I'd like to start out by um, refreshing everyone's memory of what complex trauma is. So complex trauma occurs when a person is living in an environment that they perceive as dangerous or or where they can be hurt, and they don't see a solution to that danger to get get to uh, resolve that danger or to end the pain they're experiencing. People who grow up in these environments they develop coping mechanisms that oftentimes seem to work and seem to reduce the pain they're experiencing. But as they grow up, they realize that things that helped them cope when they were young are actually making uh, their lives more difficult now that they're older. So one, one example is if you grew up in a chaotic household where your behavior, bad behavior, has, is inconsistently punished or the punishment, the, the severity of the punishment differs depending on the mood of the parent. So it might be much more severe when your parents are angry um, um, and, much, and they might not punish you at all if they've had a really good day. This actually generates a sense of chaos because the child does not need to have a, they need to have an environment where the consequences of their actions, good and bad, are consistent, have consistent, are consistently reinforced or punished in the same way so that the environment is predictable. Without that predictability, the environment becomes very chaotic and that can be seen as dangerous um, to the child. So some people, to cope with this, they'll, they, may have, they, may have, they may escape either physically or mentally. So let's say they escaped physically and they moved into their room and in their room they have it so neat and so clean and so orderly with everything in its place. So at least there in their room they are no longer experiencing chaos. Now, this can give, give you a sense of security and safety uh, and predictability, and it can seem like a good coping ne- mechanism. The problem is when it becomes compulsive, almost OCD-like, um, because as you get older, you uh, realize that these coping mechanisms that, are as, that come as a result of complex trauma actually cause you more pain than if you were to develop new, healthier, more mature coping mechanisms. So somebody with an OCD level of, an obsessive compulsive level of orderliness will experience intense anxiety if anything's out of place. And therefore they're, they're hurting themselves by, by, with this coping mechanism um, that is quite honestly out of control. So 
these uh, oftentimes when people develop coping mechanisms in response to complex trauma, they they are they stop um, maturing emotionally. Um, the the day that they have developed an unhealthy coping mechanism, they stop maturing, and that's because when you are when you have to resort to a coping mechanism to protect yourself from pain um, or in a response to complex trauma, that response becomes conditioned. And one of the things, and that means that it will be an instantaneous reactive response to any time you perceive anything as dangerous or possibly turning into something dangerous in the future. Um, So one of the things that Paul's uh, IT pro, uh, method helps you to do, helps, helps people um, with complex trauma or um, who have unhealthy coping me- mechanisms is that you identify and confront these coping mechanisms that are reactive, that are no longer helpful and actually causing you problems. So you can then confront it and do the opposite of what they're trying, well, what they, you would originally do in those situations. So one of the drivers of complex trauma uh, that we touched upon a few weeks ago is known as false guilt. Now, I'll redefine false guilt just to refresh everyone's memory. False guilt occurs when you feel guilty and responsible for the behaviors or emotions of others. So an example of this is when your dad says he drinks because you're such a bad kid. And then as a kid, you don't know what you actually believe him because, um, because what do you know? You're a kid and your dad's older than you. He has a lot more life experience. So you actually start to feel responsible whenever he, he gets really drunk and you say, oh, I'm being bad. Um, that's why he's drinking. His behavior is my fault. Or you, your mom tells you she's depressed and really sad because you guys are so difficult um, to, so difficult to support and so difficult, such difficult children. So then you feel guilty for her emotions, um, even though um, both your father's behaviors or and your mother's emotions are not under are not something you're responsible for. So, in essence, false guilt is when you feel guilty for things that are not within your control. So it's really important to identify false guilt because this can be a mechanism where people can either intentionally or, um, or inadvertently end up manipulating you. So let's say you're trying to so, – so whenever you're trying to make a change in your life, you're trying to improve yourself in some way, you're trying to move up to the next level, and therefore you're trying to take on new skills and new responsibilities uh, – Oftentimes, the people around you, and even the people you're closest to, and the people you care the most about, um, they won't like that change because they have gotten used to who you are now, and who you are now, um, or who you used to be in the past, is very predictable. Um, it's easy; they know what to expect. But whenever you're engaging in a transformation, now you're unpredictable, and not being able to anticipate what will happen in the future is very scary, not just for, for you when you're trying to um, 
overcome complex trauma and overcome unhealthy coping mechanisms. That is one of the difficulties of, of overcoming um, unhealthy coping mechanisms. But it's also something that's very difficult for other people in your life. So an example of how other people may use your false guilt against you to prevent you from growing um, and improving your life is, let's say your parents want you to come over to their house to visit and have dinner with them. So it sounds like a reasonable request. But then you also have responsibilities at work. And also maybe you have a project you're working on for yourself. You're trying to build some skills for yourself for what, in order to improve your life in some way. Um, so you say, I can't come over this weekend. Uh, I've got this, this project I'm working on, that project I'm working on. Um, I'm sorry, but I can't make it. And maybe your dad goes, wow, after everything we've done for you. Or maybe uh, your mom starts crying and your, and your dad says, or your dad calls you back a few hours later and goes, you know, you really hurt your mom. Uh, she can't even talk to you. She's crying so hard. Now, both of these things are ways in which they can induce a feeling of false guilt in you in order to get you to do what you want. And oftentimes we will feel guilty for, for, for that, but um, uh, we need to recognize that this is a, a way in which false guilt can be used against us and against improving our, ourselves or overcoming um, unhealthy coping mechanisms. Um, that, and so this is a way that others can manipulate us. So another coping mechanism, um, that a very, very common one, is that most people who have experienced complex trauma have a great deal of anger. Um, and there's usually two types of people coming out of complex trauma when it comes to anger. There's usually there's the people who recognize that they're very angry. Um, these are usually people who come from an environment where being angry is okay. It's okay for them to express anger. It's not seen as a bad thing. And oftentimes anger for them was a way, a way for them to, uh, it, was, it was very helpful for them because it meant that it helped them get what they wanted because they could use anger to um, express dissatisfaction with somebody um, in their household. And that was a means of getting what they wanted for, from somebody or, um, stopping some sort of complex trauma or pain that they were under uh, that they were experiencing. Other people who have experienced complex trauma may actually not realize that they're, they're how at, may not realize how angry they are. So, um, but these people actually are quite angry. It's just the anger has found ways to come out in different ways. So they may end up being very passive aggressive or sarcastic. They're not they're not they're not expressing their anger directly, but it's finding more complex and more nuanced ways to escape. And usually these people have stuffed down the anger so much and so effectively. And so when you start working on, on yourself and trying to identify your triggers and triggering situations, you may one day get extremely upset and extremely angry when you're working, at, uh, working on something extremely triggered and be like, whoa, where did that come from? Um, usually it's, it's always been there, but you just, it just, it just uh, came, came out because um, you've been digging down into your psyche and 
touched upon something that you've stuffed down for so long um, that you didn't realize it was there. So one way in which anger, um, one way in which anger uh, can manifest in people with false guilt who grew up in an environment where anger was not acceptable is whatever they're experiencing anger because somebody disrespected them. That's a very common trigger for, for, for anger, especially with people with complex traumas, if they're disrespected or perceived disrespect, is they think, if they grew up in an environment where anger was unacceptable, they might think, oh, no, I shouldn't be angry right now. Um, and I must be doing something wrong because I'm angry. And therefore, they turn that anger in on themselves. Um, and start looking for reasons to blame themselves for their anger or whatever disrespect that they are experiencing. Um, or for whatever caused the other person to do what they did that made them angry. So we must learn to let go of our anger because it prevents us from healthy coping. It makes us lash out, at, uh, out in self-defense or punish ourselves forever. Another coping mechanism is oppositional defiance. And now this can be, uh, go so far as to be a disorder, but it doesn't have to necessarily be, uh, be uh, so bad that it becomes a disorder itself. Usually, coping this coping mechanism occurs because you have a very overly controlling parent uh, who does not allow you your own freedom to make choices. So... This was something that I actually experienced back growing up. I was, I was definitely more of the rebellious type growing up. I grew up in a family with a um, dictatorial father and a more controlling um, mother. Uh, not because of any malintent on their part, but um, really, especially for my mother, a lot of her control was just trying to prevent bad things from happening to me. But I just was a bit resentful of not being able to make my own choices. Um, so usually when a child's growing up, you start off, you know, you have an infant and they can't do anything for themselves. So the parent is in absolute control in those situations because they are having to meet every single one of your needs because you're not capable of meeting your own. But as you get older, usually the child, and pretty much always the child becomes more skilled at meeting their needs. So usually the parent then grants them more freedom to make their own choices until eventually you're a fully grown adult and you're making all your choices on your own. If you have an overly controlling parent who, even if they're trying to protect you, if they're not allowing you to uh, make your own decisions, the child will push back against that and will, will uh, maybe be branded the rebellious child. Um, and that um, really is the child just trying to grow up. Um, but feeling restricted by their parents. Um, so eventually to this child who has an overly controlling parent, um, they will start to perceive or resist doing anything that parent tells them to do, even if it's a, something that's good for them. Um, it, what matters to them is the source of the information, not the wisdom of the information. So they will end up doing, engaging in a lot of self-destructive behaviors um, or harmful behaviors just because the parent told them to do the opposite. 
And this can turn into later in life, you may, maybe have a spouse um, who asks or tells you to do something um, that you will, will always refuse to do this thing because you'll say, I am my own boss. I'm not, going to do it. I'm not going to let anybody else tell me what to do, when in reality the more healthy approach is reflecting on, the, on whatever the thing your spouse has told you to do or asked you to do and deciding for yourself whether or not it is the right behavior or the right choice in the situation rather than dismissing it out of hand. So the next coping mechanism, and this is probably one of the most common ones because it can manifest in so many different ways, but uh, it's, it is to escape into a, to escape, it's escapism, like escaping into a fantasy world um, or escaping physically um, by moving, uh, using the point I made earlier, going into a room that is, uh, has everything orderly and in its place. Um, so when you begin to realize that you are not able to change the circumstances in your environment that is causing complex trauma to improve your situation, you'll escape into a fantasy world. Um, you escape your chaotic household by going into your room um, that you keep super organized, um, or you'll escape into a novel um, you'll escape into television or a movie or even into your imagination. You might have this fantasy family in your head um, where everything is perfect and not at all like the, the chaotic, dysfunctional family that you're living with. The reason that this is a problem is because you aren't taking the time to analyze when you, whenever you are your your coping mechanism, your reaction to trauma, to danger, to feelings of discomfort is to escape in your mind or into the TV. Um, you aren't taking the time to analyze in the here and now present your situation and trying to find solutions to your problem. Though you are no longer an actor in your world you are being acted upon by the world. So all these escape behaviors um, prevent you from, um, from effectively um, dealing with, uh, with your situation or your problems. They can help for the moment, um, help you escape the pain momentarily, but once you come out of that, that world, that pain, that situation is still there. People with escapism may, and actually my mother tend, seems to, seems to um, go, uh, have this, um, where they will tend to develop an unrealistic expectation um, that match the fantasy that they have, but because they're a fantasy, um, other people will almost always not live up to that fantasy. Uh, so one of the um, ways in which this manifested in my family was um, my mother always imagined that my sister would, after graduating from college, come live, um, live in the same neighborhood she grew up in 
and they would be best friends and do everything together. And now, on the surface, that sounds like a reasonable and and even wholesome um, desire for my mother to have. It's, it's understandable that you want to be close friends with your children. But my sister, who, yes, loved, loves my mom, wanted to travel. She wanted to see the world, and she didn't want to grow up in the small town or live in the small town she grew up in. She wanted to move around. In fact, she's now traveling the country in an RV um, and working, um, working all over the place and doing really well for herself. But my mother was very, very disappointed to find out that my, my sister didn't share that same goal. She was very hurt by it. Um, but that is because she expected her fantasy to come true, which was really unfair. It's, it's, it's an unfair expectation to have on somebody because it means that if they're not living up to your fantasy, in essence, if you're not, uh, if you're not doing everything that the other person expects you to do in an ideal world, then they're hurt for your behavior, which is not in their control and shouldn't be in their control. Um, so the next coping mechanism, which has uh, different ways in which it manifest, is distorted thinking. So this happens oftentimes because we, uh, because of, um, because of uh, false guilt. Um, so, um, for example, one way, one method of distorted thinking is emotional reasoning. You say, "I feel." this way, so this must, must be my reality. This must be the situation. So let's say you send a text out to a group and you're trying to your group of friends and you're trying to plan an event. And you've waited an hour, you've waited two hours, and nobody's responded. And then you go, oh, my God, nobody wants to hang out with me or nobody wants to um, um, join me in this activity I'm planning. And you feel rejected. Well, your, people with emotional reasoning will say, I feel like I've been rejected, so therefore I must have been rejected. Um, when in reality, your group of friends, maybe they're just busy, and if you wait maybe a little bit longer, they'll, they'll get back to you. Uh, people who have emotional reasoning um, will perceive their reality based off of how they're feeling in the moment, rather than looking at objectively a Maybe they'll come back when they ha maybe they'll respond when they have a little bit more time. Another way distorted thinking manifests itself is black and white thought processes. Um, this is very common, um, and I definitely would say that um, there was a time where I had very black and white thinking. Um, I would say that uh, there was one point in my life where um, I was very atheist. And I believe that anyone who believed in religion was, well, it sounds horrible to say, but anybody who believed in religion was really a fool. Um, and I, today I know how wrong that is. Uh, but my reasoning was, how could you, how could you believe in religion? There's, there's so many ways in which religion has caused harm to society, but... Um, as I've gotten older, I've realized there's so much more nuance to it. Um, and actually, I think atheism itself has caused some harm, too. And it's not so black and white. Today, I actually, for 
um, the most part, I actually do see myself as pretty religious. Um, and I, I see religion today as a way of, way of engaging with the world um, as your best self. Um, and there are ways that that can be, religion can be used um, negatively, but I think overall religion is a net benefit for society. I no longer see it as this black and white issue. But people with distorted thinking can see things as black and white. Um, so they might see a person, uh, uh, either people as good or bad. So they behave, if they ha- have this behavior or this trait, they're automatically bad. They're automatically put in the bad category. If they have this behavior or this appearance or this trait, they're automatically put in the good category. And there's no room for nuance, um, no room for um, really effective, um, effectively distinguishing and understanding people. And the third and final uh, way in which distorted thinking can manifest that I'd like to go over is catastrophizing. Um, so the reason uh, this is a result of catastrophizing is a result of complex trauma is, well, first, ca- catastrophizing is when you expect the worst thing to happen. So you start panicking about and ruminating over that worst thing that will happen. So the reason that this is a result of complex trauma is because in an environment, you learn to think, you, in a complex trauma environment, you learn to think that if you see signs of danger, then you need to prepare yourself from the worst thing that, thing that might happen. And so, like, let's say that you, um, let's say that uh, you are, let's take one example from my, from my life. Uh, when I was uh, performing a presentation for a professor who would determine about, ter- determine whether or not I would progress through my, um, my graduate school program, I, I had been sick actually, uh, I went to the hospital two days before, three days before this presentation, and I couldn't eat any food um, for the following, until the morning of my presentation, essentially. And I was feeling awful and terrible. And I didn't do that good of a job for that presentation. And afterward, I was just like, oh my God, I'm not going to pass. He's probably thought that this, my presentation was awful. Um, I'm not making it through this program. Um, but come to find out that he actually thought I did a pretty good job and it was all in my head um, and that I had prepared well enough despite getting sick ahead of time and despite um, what I feared might happen. Um, I had actually done a pretty good job and I, continue, I managed to continue through my program. Um, usually um, a way to deal with catastrophizing is to allow yourself to ruminate and think about whatever it is for two to five minutes um, and then reflect after that, like set a timer for yourself and then let the timer go off. Um, once that timer has gone off, you reflect on, on the two to five minutes you spent ruminating intentionally. And then you decide, did I learn anything from that last two to five minutes? And or have I been able to extract any, any meaning from that event um, or future event um, or any new strategies for dealing with it? And if the answer is yes, well, then it was productive. 
Um, if the answer is no, then that means you should go back and think and, and try to see how can I approach this situation by only focusing on the things that are under my control rather than worrying about things that you can't control. Um, and I think that's a very effective way of dealing with catastrophizing. But yeah, that is that concludes my presentation. Thank you very much, Jeff. That was a very good presentation you gave tonight. Uh, I want to ask you one more question about your presentation. Other than the example of false guilt that you gave in your presentation, can you give us another example of false guilt that has affected you in the past? Yeah. Um, I would say that going back to where I mentioned that I was rebellious growing up. Um, so to give you a little context, I grew up in a family with an older sister and a twin brother. We're fraternal. We don't, we don't look anything alike. But my, both my siblings were strive to be, you know, very good kids. And I, I respect them a lot to this day. But they both strive to be, you know, my brother strived to be the perfect child. My sisters also strive to be the obedient child. Um, and um, I had to break all the rules so that later my siblings could break the rules and not get punished for it. But because I was the first one to break the rules, um, oftentimes my mother would bring up that past where I would break the rules and actively try to make me feel guilty for it. So I don't even know why she would do it, to be honest with you. I, I, it, didn't, it wasn't an, an attempt, and it wasn't as an attempt to make me feel guilty. I think it was more of an attempt to um, protect her the way she was interpreting the event so that we could all be in agreement that that was the wrong thing to do. And um, she had made the right choices in parenting us. Um, but so she would, I remember one time we, we were sitting, me, my brother, my brother's girlfriend, and my sister were all sitting around the dining room table, uh, and my mother. And we were, I was, we were making a joke, or we were genuinely laughing at a, the first time I got caught drinking alcohol. And it was genuinely, like, I was underage, of course, but um, I, we, we'd gotten to the point where, at least me and my siblings, we weren't looking back on that negatively. Um, yes, I shouldn't have done it, but we were laughing about it because it was in the past. Um, there was no harm done. And then my mom says, my, then my mom, I forgot exactly what she said, um, but um, she was just like, she was just like, oh, well, you actually, it was something along the lines of, oh, well, you actually really could have uh, hurt yourself or somebody else by doing that um, in, in a way that was um, like with co some condemnation in there and guilt, a little guilting. Um, and I immediately said, um, and she said, you really hurt me too when you did that. Um, and I, I remember saying, saying something like, um, yeah, you're right. That was, that was really wrong of me to do. And I, I'm sorry that it hurt you, but it basically killed the entire mood at the table. Everybody went from laughing and chuckling to 
really just upset and no longer happy. Uh, and there was no benefit to that. I felt guilty um, for making my mom sad and in that moment for making her sad for laughing about it. But I think it's – and I think that's an example of folks' guilt because I felt guilty for her emotions. Um, yes, I may have hurt her in the past, but I also think it's incredibly important to look at the mistakes from the past um, and even if they were bad choices, you should be able to um, think about them in a way that, oh, I learned something from that, and now I can laugh at my own, um, you know, bad idea, bad mistake. Um, and um, basically what I think my mother was trying to do was make sure that I continued feeling bad for that or at least um, realize that, I was, that she felt bad about it. Um, and I think that that was a way in which she was using some false, false guilt to control me, or at least control the narrative in my family. Um, but uh, uh, today, I, I think today, if we were to have the same conversation, she wouldn't, she wouldn't be happy about it, but she knows now that I don't think it's fair or helpful to bring back the past um, in order to make somebody feel bad um, for something that really is water under the bridge and that you have no control over in the present. All right, Jeff. Really enjoyed that presentation tonight on complex trauma and coping mechanisms. Um, just want to uh, tell everybody, be on call next Thursday night, 730. Uh, don't forget to call in at 518-992-1035, access code 655-145. Don't forget to tell your friends, relatives, and enemies We'll see you on call next Thursday night.